That is the transfer of energy from one ball to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, instantaneously almost. It happens too quickly for us to realize what's going on. And it creates a motion that goes from one side all to the other, seeming like those are the only two involved, but every single one in the middle is involved as well. That, that kinetic energy passes from each one to the next. And it's that idea of kinetic energy from one ball to the next that sort of gives us a visual of, uh, of what we'll be talking about. I was having a conversation earlier this week uh, with someone who was asking about the story of our church. And so they saw the name of our church and, and they said, well, tell me about the name, the after church. What, is, what does that mean? And uh, a person who was with them happened to be looking at our logo and read out loud, well, it says the mission starts after church. And I said, exactly. That's, that's where the name came from. When several years ago, when, when we were praying about what to name our church, like, what do we name this thing? We didn't want to go with something generic, right? Like First Street Baptist or, or whatever, right? There's so many of those. And for, furthermore, First Baptist Church is a misnomer. Is it not? Like, how many firsts can there possibly be? We certainly didn't want that. We, we wanted to have a name for our church that when you say it out loud, it would communicate what it is that we're all about. And so the mission statement came first. The mission starts after church. That, that was the first vision that was born in, in Allison and I about this church. And the reason for that is because for so many people, church is something that you go and do for an hour, two hours, whatever, and then you go back to your normal day and your life, and what you've done in church is really nothing more than something that you've checked off a list. You go, you do your thing, and you leave. And uh, we had this, this other church that was close to where we were living, and don't take this as me dogging this church, Okay. Um, I know a lot of people there, some great people, um, but the name of this church was Destination. And as we were, as we were praying about, okay, wh- where do we go with this? We did not want there to be an idea that this was the destination. Um, hey, babe, is that live or no? Does it say that it is? I pushed it live because we Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Sweet. Well, let's just hope, shall we? Um, so anyway, this church... Um, what's that? <laughs> right. Um, this church was called Destination. And... Subtly, that name sends a message, and the message that that sends is, this is the place to go. This is the destination. But then what happens when you leave the destination? Well, then you spend the rest of your week looking forward to going back to the destination, because that place is the destination. And that's a a pervasive mindset, I think, in the church today, that the church is the destination. That's where you go and you do the thing. And then you leave and you do your normal life. And and we thought, man, that's not what it's all about. It, It should be the opposite, that the church is just a place where you are encouraged and equipped to live out the gospel, and then you go and you live it out every day. That what happens after you leave the building is really what's most important, not being in the building. Being in the building is important. Here, we encourage each other, we're in fellowship, we build relationship, but then we go and we put our feet on the ground and live out the gospel. And so, the first thing that came out was this mission statement. The mission starts after church. And from there, we began to throw out possible names, like what should we call this thing? And, uh, and I remember we were in the car, we were driving, we were just throwing out names, and, and I said, hey, I've got an idea. Let's call it the after church. What do you think? And Allie goes, I hate that. I absolutely hate that. And I'm like, why? 
Why do you hate that? And she's like, because it doesn't make any sense. Grammatically, it makes no sense. What, what does that even mean, the after church? And I was like, well, that's part of the point, right? When you say it, the after church, it makes you question, what is this supposed to mean? Hopefully, it brings you back to the mission statement. The mission starts after church. And so, despite her protesting, um, we went with that. And hopefully, um, I I think I can confidently say that it's grown on her um, in the years since. She's shrugging (laughs) in the back. Maybe it hasn't. Um, but I'm having this conversation with this person earlier this week, and I'm telling him this story that, that what really, really matters for us is what happens after church. And so I've been praying about this stuff this week, and the Lord has kind of been bringing me back to the roots and realizing that even we can be guilty of just doing the Sunday scramble, right? Right? we can be guilty of falling into that routine. I have been guilty of falling into that routine where it's like, okay, what I come here and I do on a Sunday, that's where most of my effort goes to. And the Lord has been impressing upon my heart this week that for all of us, we need to re-engage with the mission. We need to re-engage with the very reason why this church began in the first place, which is to gather to encourage and equip each other to live out the gospel every day and then and go do it, right? The mission starts after church. And so, in a sense, you and I are called to be like the ball in Newton's cradle. That ball has an effect because it transfers its kinetic energy directly to the ball that's right next to it the ball right next to it gets that kinetic energy. And then that energy is passed to the very next one right next to it. And then it's passed to the one right next to it. Our primary effect, our primary effect, and and, and this is what we're going to be talking about tonight, the most effective way for us to minister, the most effective and efficient way for us to spread the gospel, the most effective way for us to make a difference is to affect those that are right next to us. Not necessarily the ones out there, though we continue to minister in various ways to the ones out there. That's important. But the vast majority of the spiritual kinetic energy, so to speak, is going to be transferred to the person right next to us. The person who sits next to us in the cubicle at work. The person who sits next to us in our classroom. The person who we're friends with and we hang out with all the time. The person who we know doesn't know Jesus, but we're together all the time. That person who is right next to us has the greatest potential for our spiritual benefit. And so if we focus our efforts in that way, hopefully we will begin to see an incredible harvest. So I think as a church, it's, it's time for us to get back to our, our founding mission, our founding values. Well, where and how and what does that mean? So, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. We'll be reading the entire chapter um, in Acts chapter 10. And if that seems like it's too long, it's 48 verses that I'll be reading out loud. Um, as I've said before, if you complain uh, that that is too much, uh, you're a terrible Christian. So, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. Now, Allison and I have an agreement, um, so I'm going to keep my agreement with my wife, that as I'm reading this passage, there is kind of a, an unspoken rule, and that is that when you say the name Cornelius, it must be spoken like, Cornelius! A centurion of what is known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision, an angel of God came in and said to him, Cornelius! And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household, uh, I'm sorry, on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius... Having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said, Behold, these three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Yes, I'm going to keep doing this, just in case you're wondering. But Peter lifted him up and saying, Stand up, I too am a man. As he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to him, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stand, stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who'd been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So, in this story, what we have, in addition to a legendary name, is an example of oikos evangelism. So, this word oikos is one that we've used many, many times in the history of this church, but let's revisit what this concept means. So, the Greek word oikos means household, extended household, and it's used in various ways in the New Testament to refer not only to the people in the direct family of a particular household, but also those in the direct sphere of influence. Uh, that that person had. And so this could include all of the servants in their household. This could include their friends, their relatives, anyone who was closely connected to a particular person was considered to be in their oikos. Um, You may have seen the word oikos on Greek yogurt in the grocery store. Um, I don't know why they named Greek yogurt oikos, uh, because to me, I don't see the connection between yogurt and household. But here we are, oikos, the direct members of one's circle. You might call it your corner of the world. That unique place where only you inhabit. And the thing is, every single person has a distinct oikos. A distinct circle of people that you have and I don't. Okay? So every single one of us represents a different oikos. Every single one of us represents a different household. And in the scriptures, what we find over and over and over are people who are sharing the message of the good news with their oikos. So it's all over. Uh, in Luke chapter 8, verse 39, for example, the demoniac who was set free by Jesus is told to return to his household Return to your oikos, Jesus commands him, and describe all of the great things that I have done for you. So Jesus sets him free, and then he says, now go and return to your oikos. In Luke 19, verse 9, we have the story of Zacchaeus. And Jesus ministers to Zacchaeus. He's in Zacchaeus' house, and Zacchaeus repents of his sin. And in that moment, Zacchaeus, in his repentance, says... I am going to repay fourfold anything that I have taken. And it says that Zacchaeus was told, salvation has come to your oikos. In John chapter 4, verse 53, we have a story of Jesus healing the centurion's son. And what happens in that story is it tells us that the centurion's whole household, his oikos, was saved following that healing. In Acts chapter 18, verse 8, uh, Luke describes how Crispus is the leader of the synagogue in the city of Corinth. And that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, he and his entire oikos. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul baptizes a man named Stephanus, but not just Stephanus. It says he baptized Stephanus and his oikos. Mark chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, describes how Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. So Matthew, the author of the first gospel, was a tax collector. And so in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus calls him. He says to him, follow me. And after that, in the passages that that follow, what we find are the scriptures telling us that many other tax collectors were following Jesus and dining with him. Where do we think those connections happen? Yes, it absolutely could have happened that Jesus walked up to each and every one of these tax collectors and said, you follow me, and you follow me, and you follow me. But based on context and what we see so many examples of, I think it's pretty likely that Matthew is telling his tax collector buddies, hey, guys, there's hope for us. Come and see the man who told me to follow him and changed my whole life. Similarly, in Luke chapter 7 and and chapter 8, there's a story of a prostitute coming to Jesus, and soon after that, Many other sinful women and prostitutes were following after Christ. 
So she pulled up her cell phone, looked at all her contacts, and said, Hey, guys, come and see this man who changed my life. Luke chapter 15, there are three parables. One about a lost coin, one about a lost sheep, and one about a lost son. And all of these parables describe the rejoicing that happens when the lost was found. And in each one of these cases, the rejoicing happens when they tell their friends and their family, their oikos. And so the message of hope through these parables is passed on to the oikos. John chapter 1, verses 40 and 41, tells of Andrew bringing his brother to Christ. John chapter 1, verses 44 through 45, tells of Philip bringing Nathanael to Christ. Come and see. Come and see. Every single one of these examples show these people in these stories going to their friends, their families, the people that they were closely connected to through work, through their daily lives, and they are bringing them to Jesus. So we've spent a lot of time in in the history of this church talking about your oikos. Statistically, it is shown that there are approximately 10 to 15 people, roughly, in the average person's life, 10 to 15 people over whom you have some level of influence. Maybe that's a family member. Maybe that's a co-worker. Maybe that's a close friend. Maybe that's someone who you're in a sport with. Whomever it is, there's about 10 to 15 people that you're connected to. That is your everyday tribe, your oikos. And again, the thing about your oikos is that it is yours, no one else's. Your 10 to 15 people might have some overlap. Okay, we've got a a brother and sister here. Your, Your oikos may overlap a little bit, but not completely, because the relationships that each of us have are unique to each one of us. You have a closeness with these particular people that no one else does. You have a voice in your life that none of the rest of us have. You have a bridge of connection to these people that is entirely unique to you. You've earned that. You've earned their trust. You've earned that relationship. You have earned the right to speak truth into, your, into their lives, which means that your voice, your influence on them is a whole lot more powerful than a stranger that they've just met. Your voice in their lives means more to them. And so if you bring them truth, that is going to have a much greater impact on their lives than if some stranger said the exact same words to them. That's not to say that none of us have ever been impacted by the words of a stranger. We all have. But in 90 plus percent of cases, the most powerful voices in our lives are the ones that are closest to us. Most of the emphasis in, in the church at large on evangelism is based on one-touch evangelism. Um, events, going door-to-door, tracts, service projects, that, that type of thing. And none of those things are bad, okay? I'm not, I'm not saying that those things are useless. We do some of those things, right? We just had our fall festival. Those are important things to do in the life of of a church. But what we've done, unfortunately, is we've taken all of our eggs and put it in that basket. We've taken all of our evangelism training and we've made it all about those one touch events, those one time conversations, those random things where we're going to talk to a person, we're going to share the gospel, here's how you do it effectively, here's a good elevator pitch, here's an evangel cube that you can use, and boom, here's your one touch evangelism opportunity. Come to our evangelism training and we'll show you how to have a random conversation with a person about the gospel. Again, is that bad? No. But is it the best possible use of our time? It's not what makes the most difference. Going door to door. Oh my God. Can you imagine me going door to door to try to do evangelism in the year 2021? 
Uh, I remember one time, uh, several years back, I was doing evangelism training with the Southern Baptist Convention. And on this particular day, I was out to lunch with one of the trainers um, doing the uh, evangelism training. And we're talking about church planting and, and the plans for, for what we're going to do. And, and he's like, hey, you know what? You should really consider doing door-to-door evangelism in your neighborhood. And he's all excited about it. You should go door-to-door and, and invite everybody to your church, blah, blah, blah. Now, normally, under normal circumstances, I typically do a very good job of being kind and respectful when I hear a dumb idea. Okay? I will nod, and I'll be very respectful, and I'll say, oh, oh you know, I'll, I'll file that away. But in this particular case, I had to say something. Okay? I wasn't going to be mean about it, but, but I had to say something. He's like, oh, you should go door-to-door. And I looked across the table, and I said, sir, I need to ask you an honest question, and I need you to be real honest with me. He's like, okay. I said, uh, if you didn't know me, and I came and I knocked on your door. Would you answer the door? Let, let, me, let me make it a little more personal. Sir, if, if your wife was at home and I came, I came and knocked on the door, would your wife answer the door? And he was caught off guard. And, and he was, well, uh, I mean, ho- hopefully. Yeah, I mean, Sure. I, I think so. I said, dude, my own wife, if she didn't know me, she wouldn't answer the door when she saw me come to the door, okay? She would look at the ring doorbell video and go, nope, not going to happen. Now, door-to-door evangelism might be a viable strategy for a Santa Claus-looking white dude, But it's not a viable strategy for any of us who have any kind of melanin, okay? I look like a gang member who joined Al-Qaeda and then decided to go to seminary. Ain't nobody going to open the door when I knock, okay? Ain't nobody going to be looking at their video doorbell, see Nipsey Hussle meets Osama bin Laden, and say to themselves, gee, I wonder what he wants. Well, let me open the door and find out. No, they're going to do what any person would do and go, nope, I'm going to pretend I'm not home. And I'm going to watch on my video doorbell until that dude is good and gone, and then I know I'm safe. So at least for me, door-to-door evangelism, not a great strategy. Maybe it might work for you. If so, go for it. Okay, Justin might get away with it. Not me. Statistics, though, demonstrate that these types of one-touch evangelism strategies really aren't a good strategy for anyone. And neither are the ones that most churches spend most of their evangelism emphasis on. Okay? I, I want to show you a graph okay, with real stats that, that show us this. Eli, if you would go ahead and put this... Uh, graph on the screen. On this graph, you will see, and sorry for those of you at home who can't see the screen, that this is statistically how most people come to church, how most people come to know Jesus as their Savior. Um, Some that were initiated by a pastor or church staff. So a pastor invites someone to church. The number there is zero to three percent. Okay, so between 0 and 3% of people come to church or come to know Jesus because they had a random conversation with a pastor who said to them, hey, you should come to our church. Most people hear that and nod and be respectful and go, oh, okay, thanks for the invite. Doesn't work. Visitation, one half to 1%. Visitation is the uh, door-to-door, right? Door-to-door, hey, can I tell you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? 99% of people are going to be like, no, thank you. Uh, small group activity. So a, a church small group gets together. They decide, hey, let's do some type of one-touch evangelism event. And they go and do it. 95% of people don't respond to that. 
Church programs, 2 to 4%. Benevolent efforts or special needs, 1 to 3%. Uninvited visit, 2 to 4%. Special services or big events, half to 1%. All of these things so far are what the vast majority of churches spend nearly all of their efforts on. All of their evangelism efforts go into every single one of these things, none of which have given more than a potential of 6% average success rate. But then we see at the bottom, friends, relatives, associates, 75 to 90%. Other surveys put that number squarely in the 90s. 90 plus percent of people who come to know Jesus or come to church at all, do so because they have been invited by a person that they are personally connected to. Someone that they are in a relationship with. Someone that they are friends with. A family member. A close associate. 90 plus percent of people come to know Jesus because someone in their oikos has shared the gospel with them. So I think that's what we should focus on. Again, not that those other things are entirely useless, right? If all of those other things add up to even 10%, we want those 10% of people to come to know Jesus too, right? And so we'll continue to do things that will reach those 10%. But we need to place a whole lot more emphasis on the 90 plus percent. And that is what we find happening in this story in Acts chapter 10. So, if you're taking notes, here is point number one God is in control of evangelism. God is in control of evangelism. So, In most of these evangelism training strategies, there is an onus of pressure, subtly, unspoken, placed on the person doing the evangelism, right? And so they're given this strategy, they're given these verses to memorize, they're given this script to use, here's the Romans road. Use this. Here's how you answer the most important question. Here's how you use the Avenger Cube. And so the person will study up. They'll go to the small group training things and they'll practice with each other, being the lost person and the saved person in the conversation. They'll practice these things. And subtly, unspoken, there's this pressure that's placed on a person that they think, I got to do this right. Because if I don't do this right, that person's not going to come to know Jesus. And so then later on, they'll, they'll share stories about how they attempted to have a conversation with someone and it just kind of fell flat. I, I tried and they said, no, thank you, and they left. Ah, oh, now it's on me. Now if that person is separated from God for all of eternity, it's my fault. It's my fault. We place all this pressure on ourselves to be the ones to do evangelism Right. But what we see in this story is that God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is moving all of the pieces. We see in this story that God is preparing a person to hear the message just at the same time as he is preparing the person to speak the message to that lost soul. Here we find in this story, in the first several verses, Cornelius is at his house in Caesarea. And this man is a centurion. He's an important figure. He is a man of authority. He's a man of power. And it tells us that he's a devout man who fears God. And we're going to talk about what that means uh, in just a little bit. He's serving. He is seeking truth. And God, through an angel, appears to him. And this angel says to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So, God looks at this man and he says, I've been paying attention. And you are seeking after me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and send for this guy named Simon. 
he's staying with another guy named Simon. It's the first Simon that you're looking for. Tell him to come to your house with a message that I've prepared. So the angel departs and Cornelius sends his men. He says, hey, uh, go get Peter. Bring him here. So God is at work in the life of Cornelius. Just at the same time as he is talking to Peter. Peter, it says the next day in verse 9, as they were on their journey. Who is on the journey? The men sent by Cornelius. So God's already working that out. Before Peter even knows that there's a conversation to be had, God is already moving the pieces. And then these men are on their way to come and see Peter. And Peter has this vision. This, my friends, is what you call low-hanging fruit. Okay? Low-hanging fruit is the fruit on the tree that takes no effort whatsoever to pick. Right? You just walk by and get that fruit. Peter is not up on this housetop trying to put together an evangelism strategy. Okay? He, is, he is not up on the roof writing programs and event plans. He is not up on his roof practicing with his cube. He's praying. And he's waiting for dinner to be ready. <laughs> and then God shows up and says to him, some men are coming to find you. Go with them. And off he goes to the house Cornelius. God is moving these pieces. And what this does is it tells us that God will never lead you to a conversation that he hasn't already prepared both sides. He is preparing that person to hear at the same time as he is preparing you to speak. In this case, it happens beforehand. Before Peter even knows that there's a conversation to be had, God is already working in the recipient. And then he tells Peter to just go to the guy's house and share the gospel. That is low-hanging fruit. And it ought to take the pressure off of us. It ought to free us from this idea that it's all about me. It's all about my efforts. I've got to figure out how to do this. I've got to do this the right way or else. I need to be the one to really practice this and make sure because, God, if I don't do this right, then people are going to burn, and that's on me. No, this tells us that God is in control of the entire ordeal. God is sovereign. God is moving up. Uh, God is moving all the pieces. So he's moving in Peter, and then Peter shows up. He gets to the house of Cornelius, and it says a bunch of people are already there waiting. We're ready. What do you have to say to us? Verse 33, um, he says, this is Cornelius speaking. He says, so I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. <laughs> I mean, imagine, right? You're Peter. God says, all right, I'm going to send you to this place. Peter obediently goes. He shows up, and there's a house full of people. And Peter's looking around like, so um, why are we here? And the host looks at him and says, oh, we, uh, we were told to call for you because you have a message from God. So uh, we're all here. Tell us. Peter's like, wow. Uh, okay, well, that was easy. It says in verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right and acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, dot, 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 and he shares the message of the gospel. So Peter's like, oh, uh, well, okay then. Uh, since we're all here, um, here's the message. Here's the gospel. There's zero effort there whatsoever. Not even a bit. God sets it up. So you and I need to stop 
putting pressure on ourselves to make evangelism happen. We need to pray and wait for dinner. Pray that God will open up doors of conversation. Ask God every day to give you opportunity. Ask God to send you to the right person at the right time. Ask God, Lord, please let there be opportunity for gospel conversation. Give me the opportunity to minister to someone that you've already prepared to hear your truth. I promise you, it is not like God is going to be up in heaven hearing that prayer and going, Nah, no, actually, actually I've got better things to do. Um, just go about your business. No, God is in heaven waiting for us to pray that kind of prayer. Lord, I am seeking your face. I am seeking to be a part of what you are doing. Give me the opportunity to be a laborer in the harvest. God is going to make that happen. God is moving the pieces. God is speaking to Cornelius. God is sending Peter. He is the one that puts these two together. God moves. And the same will be true in our lives. If we pray every day, God, give me opportunity to minister to my oikos. God, open up opportunities for me to share the gospel with my oikos. Give me opportunity to be that kinetic energy that impacts the person right next to me. And then they get to impact the person right next to them. And then they get to impact the person right next to them. And on and on. God is the one in charge. We have to seek him intentionally. Point number two, this is related God is preparing you, and he's preparing someone else. So just be faithful. God is preparing you, and he's preparing someone else. So what you must do is be faithful. So let's take a look at this idea that Cornelius feared God. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, all his oikos, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So, what exactly does that mean? What does it mean when it says that he feared God? It means that he was someone who was honestly seeking Okay, this is not a man who is already saved. He does not know the truth about Jesus Christ. The rest of the story is about him receiving this news from Peter. God sends the messenger to this man and his oikos. But this is a person that does believe in God in a general sense. I believe that there is a God. I am trying to honor that God by living a good life by being a good person, by praying, by giving to the poor. I want to know the truth. I want to be in right standing with God. There's a lot of blanks to be filled, but this is a person who, even in their lost state, is seeking in the right way. He knows that there is something missing. He knows that there's something that he doesn't know. Now, in a related sense... This chapter is one of the chief reasons why scripturally I have always believed that we ought not worry about those who've never heard. Now, that's one of the chief questions that uh, gets spun around in every apologetic circle. What about those who've never heard? What about those who've never had the opportunity? What about those people who've never had the gospel preached to them? What does God do with them? Well, in this chapter, what we find is a promise that anyone who seeks God, anyone who seeks God is going to find him. Period. God is going to make sure that that happens. If he has to send angels, if he has to send visions, if he has to send blankets down from heaven to somebody, it is going to happen. If there is a person in any context honestly seeking, Scripture promises, if you seek me, you will find me. 
Point blank, period. We ought not worry about those who have never heard. God makes sure that anybody who wants to hear is definitely going to hear. And so one of the things that we have to realize as it applies to us is that we do not know what is going on in the hearts of the people around us. The hearts of the people in our oikos. Some of them may be just like Cornelius. Some of them may be believing in God, trying to honor God with their lives, but not knowing the full truth of how to do so. Not knowing exactly what that means. We've talked before about the fact that 70 plus percent of Americans call themselves Christians. 70 plus percent of Americans claim, I believe in God, I'm good with Jesus, but they don't know what they don't know. They don't know the full truth. They haven't come to that place of surrender. But perhaps there are some people in your oikos that know that they are missing something. They know that they don't have every blank filled. They know, I'm trying my best, but I'm not at peace. I know that there's something that's not here. I know that there's a piece that's, that's missing. I'm going to try my best anyway, but I'm still waiting and hoping for salvation. I'm, I'm waiting and hoping that God will send a messenger. Waiting and hoping that God will send you. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, it says, On the following day they entered Caesarea, Peter and his, uh, his boys. They entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. This is what oikos evangelism looks like. This man, Cornelius, has all his buddies there waiting. His friends, his relatives, his associates, he's got the house packed, ready for the gospel to come to them. This guy doesn't even know Jesus yet, and he's doing oikos evangelism. Peter shows up, and there's a a group already waiting for him. Everyone in his inner circle, everyone who he's got influence over, he's bringing them in. Hey, guys, uh, the truth is coming. And it says that he was expecting Peter. I'm expecting you. This lost person who doesn't know Jesus is expecting Peter to come and tell him the truth. We are called, every single one of us, to be exactly the way that Cornelius was. To be taking the message of the gospel and bringing it to relatives, close friends, household. Earlier on in the passage, it talks about his servants, a devout soldier from among those who attended him. So, we've got servants in his household. We've got soldiers Okay, these are co-workers. Now, he's their boss, right? But he's got his employees who are working for him that are being part of this. So we've got employees. We've got friends. We've got relatives. We've got servants. Everyone who's in his circle. Everyone who's connected. Hey, come and hear the truth. Come and hear the truth. We are called to be exactly that way with our oikos. That anyone that we've got influence with, those 10 to 15 people that we can name and say, these are the people in my inner circle who don't know the Lord. How can I invite them in? How can I expect that they will hear the truth? How can I have an attitude of expectation that they're going to encounter the truth through this ministry? Now, in this regard, I want to say a special word to stay-at-home parents and those of you who are watching. I want you to make sure that you do not feel any type of shame about not being able to be out there, quote-unquote, out there evangelizing. 
and doing the work of ministry. Because the Bible, as we have talked about, makes it so clear that the most effective evangelism happens in the oikos. And your children are the chief members of your oikos. And there is no job on earth more important than to train up your children to love Christ. Listen, I really want to see my coworkers come to know Jesus. I'm thinking of people right now, by name. I really want them to come to know Christ. Co-workers, friends, family members. I badly want to see my lost friends in heaven. But do you know who I want to spend eternity with the most? Eli, Marisol, and Juliana. I want everyone to come to know the Lord, but more than anyone else, the people that I want to spend my eternity with are them. If Ali and I were to lead the whole world to Christ, but not those three, that would be heartbreaking. And so, you stay-at-home parents who are feeling like your work is insignificant, do not look at people who are out there doing the work of ministry and let yourself think for even a second that you are missing out on significant kingdom work. You are doing the most important work in the entire kingdom. You are doing exactly what Jesus commanded in Matthew 19 when he said, bring the children to me. Bring the children to me. You are the ones bringing the children to Jesus. Do not quit. Do not be discouraged. Keep going. And so every single one of us, as we see in this story, is called to minister to our oikos. And if we do that, that is where we see the whole team winning. That's where together we're going to see the impact. If we do that, I'm telling you guys, if we are, if we are intentional and, and prayerful about saying every single day, Lord, let me, op- let me minister, let me have opportunity to share the gospel in my oikos, God is going to answer those prayers and we're going to see people come to know Jesus. I promise you. And we're going to fill this room. I want to baptize some folks. I want you to baptize those folks. If, if someone in your oikos comes to Jesus because you ministered to them, you will be the one baptizing them. I can't wait to watch that. You must be faithful, and we're going to do this together. So, some practical things that we're going to do to begin to minister together as a church. Focusing on our oikos. Um, there's three things. First is this. Eli, you can go ahead and put this um, on the screen. There are a few of these in the back. And I will be printing more of these this week. Um, some of you may have seen these on the table that's, uh, that's in the back of the sanctuary. And um, like most things, we've become blind to their presence. Um, I kind of habitually put them out because I always have done that. And that's part of the conviction that I've been experiencing this week about going back to our roots. Um, on this card, and, and those of you who might not be able to see it on, on screen... Um, it is an Oikos card, it says 8 to 15, and then on the other side of the card are blanks, there's 15 blanks here, and these blanks are where you are going to write the names of the people in your Oikos that you have prayed over to say, Lord, who are, who are the people that I can think of? Lord, who are the people in my Oikos that I know don't know you? Who's that co-worker? Who, who's that close friend? Who's that guy that I go play basketball with? Who's that person on my team? Who's that person in my study group? That they don't know the Lord, but we have a friendship. We we have opportunity. Let me write down their name. And and so what we're going to do as a church, every single one of us is going to have one of these cards. Okay? And prayerfully, we're going to put down names. And we are going to pray for these people. You're going to pray for these people every day. Okay, you're going to take this card with you, stick it in your Bible, right? Keep it there. Hopefully you're in this every day. Okay, we, I know we've talked about that a lot. <laughs> Put it in here because this is where you'll be every day, right? Wink, wink. 
Have it with you every day. As part of your daily prayer, you pray, Lord, I pray that you give me opportunity to minister to person number three. Whatever. And on here, you, you've got a couple of, uh, of, of instructions that are listed. Number one is you list these people. Number two, you pray for these people. Number three, you invest in these people. Number four, you invite these people to church. And number five, you prepare. You prepare to minister, and you prepare for opportunity, and you prepare for them to come to know Jesus. And again, if it is true that 90 plus percent of people are going to come to know the Lord because of the invitation of someone that they're personally connected to, it will be the names of the people on this card that we will see come to know the Lord, that we will see coming to this church, that we will see surrendering to Jesus. We may see some randos, okay? I hope we do. I hope that as a result of the other events and strategies that we have, that some randos come in church and they come to know Jesus too. I can't wait for that. But 90 plus percent of the people that we're going to reach are going to be written down by name on these cards. And together, we're going to be praying and ministering hoping. Because not only will you be praying for that list every day, we're going to pray for each other's lists. We're going to pray for each other to have opportunity for, for ministry in those things. I'm going to pray that Kayla has opportunity to reach the people on her list. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing that we're going to do together as a church beginning in December and I have to shout out to Kayla here again because she texted me this week and gave me this, this idea and I have been excited about it all week long. Okay, I've been geeking out about it and, and telling people that, uh, that we've got this uh, coming up. The second thing is called Dwell. Okay, this is a scripture memorization tool. Eli, you can go to the next, uh, the next slide here. Um, if you are near a computer, your phone, whatever, you can go to dwelldifferently.com and you'll see an example of this. Okay, so what's going to happen beginning in the first week of December? On the back table, there's going to be this beautiful, I think, yellow box. And in this yellow box is going to be resources for us as a church to be memorizing a verse together. And, and what it is, is it's a visual representation of a verse. Okay, so um, one of them has a picture of a dove. And it takes the verse, and the first letter of each word in the verse is, oh, there it is. Thank you. That's not the dove, but yeah. So as you can see, the first letter of the verse, uh, of each word of the verse, is represented in this picture. Okay? And it's an easy strategy for you to remember what the verse is. And so in the, in the box, each person will receive some temporary tattoos uh, of this design, You'll receive a, a keychain card with the design and the verse on the back. You'll receive a 3x5 card with the, the design and the verse on the back. You'll receive a devotional that comes with it on the verse. Together as a church, we will have opportunity to, to focus on this verse throughout the month. I'll be producing some, some devotional material on that. They also have a podcast and a blog that is updated throughout the month with resources on this verse. I think they post every day on Instagram about that month's verse. And so together as a church, we can be memorizing the word. And one of the things that I'm most excited about is doing this with my kids, with my oikos. I'm excited for every month for all of us to put on our temporary tattoos and read the verse together and memorize it. And, and then at the end of the month, all of us as a church, as we have all been ministering in our own oikos, can know the word together. Uh, I'm also thinking about Eli, who I know is a collector, and, and all those cards, those, those keychain cards that have the, the picture and the verse on it, he's going to want to collect the whole set. <laughs> so I can't wait to do that. So we're going to be doing that every single month beginning in December. I'd start tomorrow, but... The way that it works is a new box comes at the beginning of the month. So we have to wait until uh, the first week of December to do that. And then finally, uh, number three. You can go to the next slide there, buddy. Number three is what I'm calling a captain's meeting. Um, now, I was going to call this a prayer meeting, 
But as we know, if you call something a prayer meeting, no one will show up. So, I had to change the name to something that would be a lot more enticing. And what this is going to be is once a week, and I haven't figured out what day yet, once a week, very short, on Zoom, with all the men in the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to log on and we're going to ask three questions. How can we pray for you? How can we pray for you as you lead your family spiritually? And how can we pray for your oikos? So every man in the church will log on. We'll take 20 minutes or less. There's no homework to this. There's no book that you have to read. There's no level of knowledge that you have to have. Log on. We ask three questions. We pray. And then we sign off. And then you go and you bring that prayer to your oikos. You lead your family spiritually. I'm excited, you guys. I'm excited about what God has for us. I'm excited about the opportunities that he's going to open for us. I'm excited about each one of us signing up to do our part. So, for those of you that are here in person today, there are these cards in the back. Grab one before you leave and prayerfully begin to fill that out this week. Those of you that are watching at home, get here next week, okay? Somehow, some way, get here and get this and begin to fill this out. And we're going to start to see the Lord move in powerful ways. We're going to start to see the whole team winning. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for calling us to be a part of your story of redemption. God, thank you that you don't just save us, you also send us. And God, I pray that every single one of us would be filled with a passion to be a part of this. That you would unite us in this shared mission. That you would unite us in memorizing scripture, centering ourselves on the word, speaking it in our homes every single day. God, I pray for any person who is here or watching who has never come to a place of surrender. Perhaps there are people who are watching or listening who know that there's something they don't know. Who maybe they have tried to be a good person. Maybe they believe in God. But they know that they have never surrendered to Jesus. 